Welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, January 21st, 2020 podcast. I'm Annals Editor-in-Chief, Christine Lane, with a quick overview of the new material you'll find in the journal. After you hear about what's new, you can go to annals.org to take a closer look at the articles that I'll mention. Anyone who spends time with U.S. physicians has probably heard them complain about the electronic health record, or EHR, particularly the time they must spend entering data into the EHR. Physicians complain that EHRs have turned them into data entry clerks. The amount of time that physicians spend using EHRs to support the care delivery process is a concern for the U.S. healthcare system, not only for costs related to patient care, but also because of physician burnout and job dissatisfaction. On January 14th, we published a study that begins to document that time in a very objective manner. Researchers from the Cerner Corporation, the health information technologies company responsible for a very commonly used EHR, extracted a full year of data from software log files for approximately 100 million outpatient encounters involving 155,000 U.S. physicians in non-surgical specialties in 417 health systems to describe how much time the physicians spent on various EHR functions. The researchers found that physicians spent an average of 16 minutes and 14 seconds per encounter using EHRs. Of this time, 33% was spent on chart review, 24% on documentation, and 17% on ordering. The distribution of time spent by physicians using EHRs varied greatly within specialty, but the proportion of time spent on various clinically focused functions was similar across specialties. Given that many outpatient encounters are scheduled for only 15 to 30 minutes, EHR use is occupying a substantial portion of physicians' time. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Julia Adler-Milstein writes, quote, This study provides perhaps the last word on the question, how much time do outpatient physicians spend using the EHR? The answer, just over 16 minutes per encounter. This finding begs the ultimate question, which of course the study cannot answer, is this too much time? Hyperuricemia is common in patients with type 2 diabetes and can lead to gout. Diet and exercise can prevent gout, but many patients require long-term pharmacological therapy. Fabuxostat and allopurinol may reduce the risk for gout. SGLT2 inhibitors prevent glucose reabsorption and slower serum uric acid levels, which suggests they could also be effective in preventing gout. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Sinai Health in Toronto studied a U.S. nationwide commercial insurance database from March 2013 to December 2017 to compare the rate of gout between nearly 300,000 adults prescribed either an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist. They found that gout incidence rate was significantly lower among patients prescribed an SGLT2 inhibitor than those prescribed a GLP-1 agonist. These findings suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors may reduce the risk for gout among adults with type 2 diabetes, although future studies are necessary to confirm this observation. In the next article, published on January 14, an independent panel convened by the National Institutes of Health Pathways to Prevention Program offers 26 recommendations for further research to achieve more equal use and access to 10 preventive health services recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. The panel identified multiple factors including insurance coverage, care access, and community health system and provider engagement 
as key to securing equal access to preventive services and thus reducing health disparities. Next is a brief research report that found that physicians entering the Medicare program are more likely to work at large group or hospital-owned practices than small or independent practices. Researchers from the University of Minnesota and Harvard Medical School analyzed Medicare carrier claims for a random 20% sample of beneficiaries from 2008 to 2017 to quantify how practice size and hospital ownership differ between physicians who entered versus physicians who are exiting the Medicare program. The researchers found that among 630,979 physicians, the share of physicians in the largest practices increased from 32.1% in 2009 to 48.8% in 2016. The share of physicians in hospital-owned practices increased from 18.8% to 25.8%. Compared with exiting physicians, entering physicians were more likely to practice in large group or hospital-owned practices versus small or independent practices, and turnover rates were much higher at those large practices. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that policymakers aiming to promote competition may consider payment policy that makes independent practice more appealing. Daily pre-exposure prophylaxis, commonly referred to as PrEP, with a single pill containing a form of tenosivir with emtricitabine, virtually eliminates sexual HIV transmission. Before this drug was used for PrEP, it was a cornerstone of HIV treatment, but it has largely been replaced by a newer treatment regimen that contains a different formulation of tenofovir. As we embark on a national effort to scale up PrEP, there are questions about whether we also abandon the older drug for the newer one for HIV prevention. Until recently, when people thought of PrEP, they thought of the drug with the brand name Truvada in the U.S. However, in October 2019, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a newer drug with the brand name Discovi for PrEP. Gilead Sciences, which manufactures both drugs, has claimed that Discovi is safer than Truvada. If hundreds of thousands of people using Truvada for PrEP were to switch to Discovi, there are major financial implications for Gilead. Generic forms of Truvada will become available in 2020, whereas Gilead has exclusive rights to manufacture Discovi until 2026. Thus, having Discovi as a preferred PrEP option would extend Gilead's market dominance for years to come. A commentary published on January 14th explores what the evidence really tells us about these two PrEP options. The first article published online on January 21st looks at changes over time in the outcomes of patients following bone marrow transplantation for cancer. Researchers from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center compared cohorts of patients that had bone marrow transplants during 2003 to 2007 versus 2013 to 2017 to determine whether survival has improved over the past decade and to note impediments to better outcomes. The most recent cohort was older with more comorbid conditions at baseline. Survival outcome measures were analyzed along with transplant-related complications. The researchers found that over the past 25 years, the frequency of day 200 non-relapse mortality has progressively decreased from 30% to 16% and now 11% while relapse rates also decreased. Rates of infectious, gastrointestinal, kidney, and respiratory complications have also decreased. And in some cases, the complications that did occur were less severe overall. 
According to the authors, these improvements likely result from the accumulation of many individual incremental advances in conditioning therapy, graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis, prednisone dosing, infection control, and supportive care. While these findings are encouraging, the results are only relative to an earlier error. In absolute terms, the frequency of overall mortality during 2013 to 2017 was still a sobering 40%. Determining the optimal panel size or number of patients a full-time primary care physician should see is a complex undertaking that requires balancing patient need with those of the provider team. There are a number of methods employed to determine this number, yet the optimal panel size remains unclear. To shed light on this issue, researchers from West Los Angeles Veterans Affairs Medical Center reviewed 16 hypothesis testing studies and 12 simulation modeling studies on the association of panel size with six major aims of quality health care and physician burnout to help inform evidence-based decisions about primary care panel size. They found that the quality of the evidence was modest at best. The few available studies included in their analysis provided a signal that increasing panel size may be associated with modest worsening of clinical quality and patient experience. Modeling studies support the idea that risk adjustment and practice level variables influence the optimal panel size for patient access to care. The researchers point out that current recommendations about panel size are based more on historical experience than on evidence. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Christine Sinsky writes, quote, in asking whether the optimal panel size in primary care is 500 patients or 2,500 patients or somewhere in between, are we asking the right question? A better question is, what are the resources and practice models that facilitate primary care physicians and their teams' optimal management of a population of patients? And ultimately, what resources and models provide access to the highest quality primary care for the U.S. population, end quote. Preventing firearm-related injury and death requires pragmatic, community-based solutions to promote safer storage of firearms during periods when the presence of a gun in the home presents risks to those living there. In the next article, researchers from the Colorado School of Public Health and the University of Colorado School of Medicine report an encouraging response to a tool they created to assist gun owners in locating storage options for their guns. The Gun Storage Map tool is an online resource for the public and for clinicians who counsel at-risk patients. The statewide map displays firearm retailers and law enforcement agencies willing to consider requests for voluntary temporary gun storage. The authors disseminated the tool to targeted Colorado stakeholders, including medical and behavioral health providers, hospital groups, the crisis system, professional organizations, and the population at large through media relations. In total, 46 retailers, 45 firearm retailers, and one safe deposit box company, and 15 law enforcement agencies agreed to be listed on the map. While ongoing evaluation of the map's effects is needed, the researchers believe that with proper dissemination, the storage map tool could help translate safe storage counseling into action. It may also be useful in other scenarios when individuals might want to store firearms away from home, such as during home rental, visitors, or extended travel. Most of the articles published in the January 21st print issue were initially published online and discussed in prior podcasts. New material in the issue includes two on being a doctor essays and two new graphic medicine articles. Also accompanying the issue is the latest Annals for Hospitalist Alerts. In addition to key points from recent articles relevant to hospital medicine is a commentary that discusses the role of hospitalists in learning health systems. 
January 21st also brought the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guys discuss prevention of kidney stones and Annals on Call addresses the topic of fecal microbiota transplantation to treat recurrent C. diff infection. And the January 21st issue is accompanied by a special supplement to the journal that includes position papers in which the American College of Physicians describes the organization's vision for a better U.S. healthcare system for all and policy recommendations for how to achieve their vision. The supplement titled Better is Possible, the American College of Physicians' Vision for the U.S. Healthcare System presents a comprehensive interconnected set of policies to guide the way to a better U.S. healthcare system. It includes a call to action that challenges the U.S. not to settle for the status quo, but to implement systematic healthcare reforms. The additional set of ACP policy papers address issues related to coverage and cost of care, healthcare payment and delivery systems, and barriers to care and social determinants of health, and offer specific recommendations supported by evidence about ways the U.S. can change the status quo and achieve a better healthcare system for all Americans. In the accompanying editorial, ACP leaders offer their perspective on why physicians have an obligation to speak out about the problems plaguing the U.S. healthcare system. The editorial reiterates ACP's longstanding commitment to working on behalf of patients to improve access to health care. Four other editorials offer comment on the ACP's vision by experts in public health, quality measurement, health economics, and access to care. The supplement is a must-read for everyone interested in the ongoing debate about health care in the U.S. That brings me to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've highlighted. As always, there are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.